2: Rachel Zoe here and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that will be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts.
3: You are listening to The Art of the Hustle, the show that breaks down how the world's most fascinating people have worked their way to the top. I'm your host, Jeff Rosenthal, co-founder of Summit and owner of Powder Mountain Ski Resort in Utah. And today we've got a real treat for you all, a true hustler on her ranch in North Carolina on Capitol Hill or on the soccer field, Hope Solo. For those listening, Hope Solo isn't just a FIFA World Cup legend that left her mark in the 2015 World Cup. She's a distinct voice behind the fight for equal pay among female athletes and has brought to light the issues that youth soccer is facing in society today. A true advocate of the game whose passion serves on and off the field. Hope, how are you?
4: I'm doing great. How are you?
3: Awesome. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And are you in North Carolina right now? I am. Where, where in North Carolina?
4: We live in the northwestern part of the state, towards the mountains. You're perhaps familiar with the town of Boone. It's a small little college ski town.
3: Okay, very cool. And, and do you have goats and chickens and such? Are you living a literal farm life? We
4: do not have goats. We have ducks and chickens, pretty low maintenance, and they provide, you know, food for us and, and manure. And we are getting two more pigs. We did have two pigs that we recently butchered.
3: It's really a, a pleasure to get to talk to you today. You know, I, I'm not being, it's not, a, it's not superfluous to say that you are the best at your position in history. And, you know, I know that there's a lot that has gone into that. To begin, you know, where are you from? Where did you grow up?
4: I grew up in a very small town on the eastern part of the state of Washington, a little town called Richland, Washington. It's about four and a half hours on the other side of the mountains uh, of
3: Seattle. And how'd you, how'd you get into soccer?
4: I played soccer. My dad was my first coach. Uh, Like many kids, I played soccer when I was starting at four or five years old. My first team was the Pink Panthers, and I was just a tomboy. I played all the sports. I think, you know, at that day and age, it was kind of what parents did. They put their kid into the sport to hopefully, you know, let their kid run around, get some exercise, and, and that's how it began for me as well.
3: And were you exceptional at it from a young age? Were you the best player on the field when you were little?
4: My dad had to take me off the field quite a bit because I was scoring too many
3: goals. Wow. Okay. So when did you make the transition to goalkeeper?
4: I didn't make the transition until I was 18 years old and until I went to college at the University of Washington. That's really when I became a full-time goalkeeper. And I chose to go to the University of Washington for many reasons. But one of those reasons was because my coach, Leslie Gallimore, allowed me to play both on the field as well as in the goal.
3: No way! In college, you were playing both on the field as, and goalkeeper in a D one program.
4: Well, that was that was the idea, but I became a full time goalkeeper, nevertheless, in college. But I was recruited by many universities throughout the nation for both on the field as well as in the goal.
3: And I remember from my own soccer playing days, University of Washington had a pretty legendary goalkeeper program and coach. Correct?
4: Um, you know, we weren't we weren't the North Carolinas of the world. Um. We weren't the Stanfords of the world. We were a very hardworking soccer team with great coaches, nevertheless. And yes, we had one of the best goalkeeping coaches in the nation. Really, Leslie Galmer and Amy Griffin, they helped me understand the intricacies of goalkeeping and why it's a position that we all should really love and respect. But I didn't have respect for the position in, in the early days. In fact, I was really embarrassed to be a goalkeeper.
3: And what changed? What what do you what did you did something happen where you got bit by the bug? Was it the did you enjoy the pressure? Did you, were you just great at it? Like what what shifted?
4: Well, I was an athlete and I, I loved to play sports and I loved to run around. I loved basketball, I loved to score goals, I loved to slide tackle. I I, I was in shape and, and I just I loved every aspect of, of running around wild on the soccer field. And I felt like I was encaged when I was put into the goal. And I'll never forget my, my grandma and grandpa and my, my mom and dad, they came to most of my games, my college games, they would drive the four and a half hours across the mountains to come see me play. After the games, my grandma would come up to me and she would say, oh, you must be bored back there. What'd you do the whole time? You twiddle your thumbs. And I remember it just really hurt me. And I realized nobody is respecting what I'm doing. And I'd have to tell my grandma and my grandpa, I'm, I'm contributing. I am back here organizing my defense. I'm staying focused for 90 minutes. This is very difficult mentally as well as physically. But there were games where I would go the entire game with, with rarely touching the ball. And that was very difficult for my parents and my family to see, especially coming from one of the best field players in the state at that point in time. And so it, it was. I, I had no sense of pride in the position And I recall this time where we were flying, my college team was flying for an away game and somebody on the plane, a stranger, he asked, he said, oh, you guys are are a soccer team. You know Who's the goalkeeper? And everybody kind of looked at me and I remember sinking in my seat on the plane, too embarrassed to raise my hand to say that I'm the goalkeeper because there was such a stigma towards goalkeeping. Goalkeepers in America were oftentimes the kids who were, you know, not as well-developed on the field. They weren't as great with the ball at their feet. Perhaps they weren't as in shape as the field players. And so it kind of came with a stigma that the goalkeeper just wasn't the best athlete. And I always was one of the better athletes. So I, I, I had a sense of shame and I really had to overcome that. And it took my college coaches and four years in, uh, of really trying to understand the position and learning it and studying it to overcome that shame and have a sense of pride in the position.
3: Incredible. And you mentioned that your mom and your grandma would drive four and a half hours over mountaintops to come and see your games. Yeah, I had a great support system. Absolutely. Amazing. And, you know, uh, not to jump too quickly into, you know, what what has transpired in the last couple of years, but, you know, one of the things that I find to be most inspiring about your story specifically is that, you know, you really took a real stand for equal pay. And, you know, I think that the gender inequity doesn't stop at pay. It also continues to attention. And where, you know, Colin Kaepernick doesn't have a spot on his team, um, I feel like the same is true for you for the positions that you've taken. And for those who aren't familiar, perhaps you could give a little bit of background on, on, you know, what went down and the stance that you took.
4: In my younger years... I didn't realize that I was really pushing for equality. I just thought that, that you know, having an equal CBA to the men was the right thing to do. And, you know, I, I got on the national team, the U.S. team in 1999. I played on all of the youth teams. I think my first contract with them was signed in 1996, so I was quite young. And I went through probably five different CBA negotiations, so five different contracts between the players and the federation. And I remember when I was in my early 20s, asking the president of the Federation, well, why don't we just have the same exact contract as the men? And we were always told that's a non-starter. And so we we would push for these things, but we just never got anywhere. It was like beating our heads against a brick wall constantly. And, you know, we didn't realize we were pushing for equality then because we didn't have these federal lawsuits. And this happened time after time after time again. We pushed for better doctors, better fields, better hotels, better travel arrangements. And we constantly got denied. And, you know, I think growing up in a family with my my grandma and my mother, my mother was a black belt in karate. My grandma worked throughout her entire life. She worked. My grandfather was an engineer who came home and cooked dinners for the family. So there really wasn't that traditional role of male-female role in the family and, when I got out of Richland and I went on to college, I was raised where equality was just a part of our day-to-day life. And I didn't realize until I became a young adult that this was not part of the real world. That And I'll never forget in college where being a female soccer player was not well-respected as compared to being a male football player. And I saw that in the weight room. I saw that in my discussions with, with male athletes. And suddenly I realized life really is not equal and life is, really is not fair. And we tried to handle all of these issues and these, these inequities behind the scenes. We fought for them day in and day out, every single year, and we got nowhere. And when we won the 2015 World Cup, we had record-breaking numbers. And
3: and, and not, to, not to interrupt you, but record-breaking meaning it was the most viewed soccer game, male or female, in history, correct?
4: Yep, in history, men are women, most viewed game. Not only that, but we bring in so much money for the Federation, especially in marketing dollars. So when you see Nike ads, a lot, most of the time, you're going to see the women on those Nike ads, not the men, because a lot of people in America, unfortunately, don't recognize the male players because they have not won a World Cup. So despite these facts, the Federation still didn't wanna pay us equally. So we were forced to handle this through the court system. And my teammates and I decided that now is the time. We won the 2015 World Cup. If the Federation still does not wanna pay us equally, we're gonna have to fight for our rights. And that's when we filed our complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. I think that was in March of 2016. We had support of United States senators, U.S. congressmen and women, Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, from the media, from so much of the public. I mean, this was, this was our time to stand up and fight because we had so many people behind us. And then there was a change in the administration, and the EEOC sat on our complaint for over two years. I think it was close to two and a half years. And I realized I can't put my faith into them the only way to see this through is by actually filing a federal lawsuit so i finally filed my suit in august of last year in federal court and i'm accusing us soccer of violation of the equal pay act and wage discrimination and right now i have a hearing on february 21st
3: amazing and 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 thank you i mean it's it's just incredible and to to reiterate the inequity um, it, the inequity would grow as you would become more successful. As I understand it, you were not only making less, but you were playing way more games because you'd go further and further into these tournaments, correct? The women's team versus the men's team.
4: Yes, I think that the perfect comparison is um, between myself, a goalkeeper, of course, and Tim Howard, the men's goalkeeper at the time. And in his World Cup year, he played eight games. And in my World Cup year, I played twenty. 23- three games, so almost three times as many games. And I won the best goalkeeper of the World Cup. Our team won the World Cup. And I received $40,000 less than Tim Howard.
3: Oh, man. And are there U.S. men's players that have been supportive in this fight for equal pay?
4: Unfortunately, there has not been. And I I don't know entirely why other than... This whole concept is is quite simple. <laughs> it's federal law that was passed in 1963. It, it you know it's it states that based off of gender, um, if you have the same employer who does the same work, puts in the same amount of hours, has the same obligations, then based off of gender, you cannot pay them differently. It's it's pretty simply stated our employer, we have the same employer, the men's team and the women's team, which is U.S. soccer. So it's pretty easy, but U.S. soccer has done a great job in convoluting everything and confusing the general public. They bring in uh, how much, you know, the, the ticket sales, how much money each team brings in. But at the end of the day, it's federal law. And when people go and debate this in the public, people always ask me, so do you think, for instance, um, you know, the WNBA and the NBA should get paid the same amount of money. And I say, no, I do not, because they do not have the same employer. It's not the same thing. So I do not think that every single athlete should get paid the same, but I do want to follow federal law, which is the Equal Pay Act and Title Seven. So I, I think that, you know, I I don't think the current and the former men's players truly understand the concept. Uh-huh. So, it's unfortunate, but I think we are on the right side of history, and in due time, people will understand this um, in a more logical way.
3: Sure. And and I think we all like to celebrate those that stand up for rights and those that go against the grain after the fact. We love celebrating, like, Steve Jobs or, you know, whomever. And But at the time, when it's really the moment— I don't think that's the case. I think that society, we often cut down or shoot down people that, that break from norms. And, and I, I'm sure it must have been scary for you. It clearly has impacted your career in a meaningful way on the field. Um, when you were making this decision, were you afraid of, of this outcome? Is it something you were conscious of?
4: Yes, of course. Um, but I did think that the entire team would be in this together. I didn't know that I'd be on my own island I truly believe that all of us would move forward in this federal lawsuit together. And then, you know, with my firing, which happened after the 2016 Olympics, um, I knew I was fired because of my fight for equal pay. I was the head voice behind this cause. I saw the emails back and forth between myself and the Federation. And the Federation used the excuse of me calling our opponents cowards as a reason for my firing. Publicly, that's what they said, again, confusing the general public and, and telling the media something that, that wasn't truly the case. But my firing was a way to use me as an example, and it was a way to quiet the rest of my teammates. And I understood the pressure that they were under at, at that time. I understand that they're still in a different position because they are still employed by U.S. soccer. And it's very difficult. Um, you know, I, I always say the tip of the spear takes the most hits. And I've felt those hits many, many times. Um, I've been labeled. I continue to be labeled. Um, I've lost hundreds of thousands of dollars in speaking engagements, in broadcasting deals um, within the soccer world. Um, but it, it's a, it is hard, and it can be really, really lonely. But throughout this process, I have found a number of different people, especially as I ran for the president of U.S. Soccer. I found that there's so many people who are asking me to continue to use my voice because they don't feel like they are able to use their platforms or their voices. Mm-hmm. So I know that at the end of the day, what we're doing is, is we're making people listen, and we're making people think twice. U.S. Soccer probably will not change their ways right now until they're forced to do so. But I say it all the time, people don't give up their power. You have to fight for your rights. And when you look at history, everything, whether it's civil rights or women's rights to vote, it wasn't just handed to them. They fought to get these rights. And that's what we're doing right now with U.S. soccer. And everybody says, you know, well, maybe U.S. soccer will wake up. I don't think they will wake up. I think we have to fight for the power. They're not gonna give up the power. And right now we're forced to do that through federal court. And I'm hopeful, I really am hopeful that the current team members eventually will will follow suit and realize how important this is for the future generations.
3: Well, U.S. soccer just has such a sparkling reputation, you know, over the last couple of years for being, in, I'm being totally sarcastic, as I'm sure many people have read, you know, all the things taking down CONCACAF and like the the corruption and the things that have been, Prevalent. Um, and and I, I just want you to know that you're a hero. I mean, for myself and for, you know, the, the people that I spend my time around, the action that you took here and to truly self-sacrifice in order to stand up for the rights of not just your own, but your fellow women is what it really means to be heroic. And uh, thank you. I mean, I know that's not a question, but I truly mean it.
4: That means a lot. It, it really does. You know, sometimes... Uh, sometimes I have nightmares. Sometimes I can't sleep at night because my mind is just racing. Sometimes my husband worries about me because it has been stressful and, and we want to start a family and, and soccer isn't everything in my life, but I think soccer is very indicative of society and the chauvinism that is and sexism that is embedded in our society. And, and so I think when we fight in the sports world, I think we're also making improvements uh, throughout the rest of the world.
3: And, and what, what can we do? Like, what do you think we can do, you know, as people in our own lives or professions or to support your efforts?
4: Well, I think everybody needs to educate themselves. These, these documents are not fun to read. And we have a lot of great relationships with a lot of different media personalities. But at the same point in time, this takes time and effort to dig in, to really understand and to really learn. And a lot of people don't have time. A lot of people don't get paid enough to write really in-depth articles. Um, and, and I think we need to do, do better as, you know, the media here in America needs to do better because we need to understand these really important issues that involve all of society. And in order to do so, we have to rely on the media to help educate the rest of the population. I hope that you stay committed to this case and you watch it And on February 21st. I hope you uh, you can... You know, tell your listeners what's going on and just continue to update everybody. I think the more uh, quiet we are, it's lessening our case. We're
3: going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with Hope Solo.
0: Do you suck at money? Don't worry. You're not alone. That's why Matt and I created this podcast, How to Money. That's right, Joel. Money can be intimidating, and we're all about changing that perception. We're two best friends making money conversations fun and interesting and helping people suck a whole lot less at this money thing. So whether you want to save more, buy a home, or just gain a better perspective on a subject that affects all of us, just search for How to Money.
3: Welcome back to the Art of the Hustle. Here in the studio with us is Hope Sola. And and what do you think it is about your psychographic, you personally hope that, you know, made you the one that stayed with it. You know, your other teammates, they also were part of the initial Filing and public sort of you know announcement that you weren't going to stand for this anymore, but ultimately you're the one that was down to stand between the sticks and be the goalkeeper and take all the pressure without the glory of being the forward and scoring the game winner. And similarly, this is not like the glorious you know mountain to stand on top of. This is the one that that your teammates really truly needed. And what do you think it is about you that made you the person that that had whatever whatever it is that that is your essence that made you the the, the woman that is leading this charge?
4: I have no idea, but I've been labeled throughout my career. Um, some of those labels have been me being outspoken. And the media seemed to use that against me like it was a negative. And then I realized later in my career that being outspoken is actually a really positive thing. Because silence doesn't change the world. The only way to create change is by fighting for it, and by speaking about it, and by being loud about it. So being outspoken now is something I take pride in. But also with those labels, people try to label me as selfish. And to be called selfish has has hurt me quite deeply. But as I also told you earlier, I've met a number of different people who have come in into our team and and wanna fight against the powers that be alongside of us. And that has been incredible to see because we are slowly growing and growing and growing. You know, I think at one point in time, we're going to be big enough to actually take on the likes of U.S. soccer, FIFA, as well as the the U.S. Olympic Committee, because there is a lot of change that needs to happen within sport, not just within U.S. soccer. And I don't know if you're aware that we actually have a complaint going right now with the Olympic Committee. It's regarding the Ted Stevens Act. The Ted Stevens Act requires that every national governing body, national governing body, just for your audience, is what U.S. soccer is. You take USA Gymnastics, that's a national governing body. You take U.S. Swimming, that's an NGB. So all of these programs that compete for the Olympics have NGBs. The Ted Stevens Act states that every NGB has to support, for instance, with soccer. So U.S. soccer as an NGB has to support all of soccer in America, not just professional soccer. But right now, U.S. soccer is putting most of their money right into the U.S. men's and women's national teams, as well as major league soccer. And they are neglecting the Paralympian team. They are neglecting the U.S. deaf team. They are neglecting the Hispanic leagues, the adult leagues, and youth soccer throughout America. So we finally made an official complaint with the USOC, and we actually um, are in arbitration with that as well.
3: And that's a great transition to youth soccer in the U.S. We met through Street Soccer USA, which is a wonderful organization, trying to bring you know sport and teamwork and uh, to people that otherwise wouldn't have the means to go into paid soccer. Um, and I know that's something that you've spoken about publicly a bit as well. What, what do you think the state of youth soccer is today, and what do you think we could do to improve it in the U.S.?
4: I always make the comparison to LeBron James out of Akron, Ohio. How are we in, in our soccer community going to find the LeBron James of soccer if we are not opening our doors to every community? The cost to play soccer and to be on a developmental team is, is, doesn't allow for families who are underrepresented communities or families with three or four children, it doesn't allow them to play because the cost is so high. So soccer in America right now has become a rich white kid sport. And if I were to play in this day and age, if I was a young soccer player, my family would never have been able to afford the fees for me to play, the travel fees, the cleats, the gear, but also the club fees. And so I never would have been able to play and fulfill my dreams to play for the United States and play in Olympics and World Cups.
3: And so, you think that we need to figure out ways to engage those that are in those marginalized communities, those that otherwise couldn't afford it. And when you look at many of these players that do end up dominating around the world, they often come from those communities.
4: Absolutely. US soccer loses out by not developing its own core players from non traditional communities like the African American population and the Asian American population they're doing it to themselves and we wonder why we aren't winning World Cups on the men's side. We have to find the best talent throughout the country. And US soccer is responsible not to make money off of these youth players, but rather to put money back into the youth in order to find these players. And we have to move beyond the problem of representation and we have to make sure the pipeline of talent to all aspects of society is not blocked or broken. And I think the only way to do that is to really put an individual in charge who is prepared to take action. And right now, the leadership within U.S. soccer is profit over progress. And it's been that way because soccer is a, you know, it's a business and it's a money-making sport here in America. And as an NGB, as I said earlier, it's not supposed to be profit over progress. We are supposed to help our, our youth players. We are supposed to find the best players in our country to represent our country. But right now the pyramid is upside down.
3: Totally. And, and to, Bring it back around to to you and and what you said that that metaphor of profit over progress. You clearly are somebody that always put progress above all else. And uh, and you know I I remember um, uh, asking Abby Wambach about playing with you, and she told me that if you like missed a mark or if like somebody you'd get a phone call the next day or you'd get a text message after the game. So like even even when in your playing days, if people weren't doing the things that they should have been doing, you weren't saying like oh I want to be you know. Loved, you were like, I want to win. I want to. I want us to win. And um, do you do you think that that's something that's really important? Is that indicative of your personality as well?
4: Well, I have to tell you, Jeff, <laughs> it wasn't always popular. Um, I believed in winning. I believed in always putting your best foot forward at practice, at training, or in games. Um, I, I did hold people accountable and. I think it was very difficult for people in, in my relationship with people off the field um, because it wasn't, it wasn't all roses. It was, I will hold you accountable. I'll hold myself accountable. Um, and I want people to hold me accountable as well because I am in this to win Olympics. I am in this to win World Cups. And these friendly games are easy when it comes down to playing you know, seven, seven games in a short amount of time. Everything changes. Pressure gets to people, the being on TV gets to people. You you never know what you're going to expect. And so I really treated every training session like we needed to develop ourselves and develop our team for the World Cup. Because at the end of the day, when we left in 2011, when we were so close to winning, it was our fault because of defensive errors and defensive mistakes, is the reason why we didn't win that tournament. And I don't know. Every defender has come up to me thanking me for staying on them. And I look back to my college coach, Leslie Gallimore. We weren't friends with her. She, uh, she's one of the best role models and best coaches I've ever played for. But she scared me, and she scared all of us. And the moment we graduated from college, you would find all of us back in her office or at a bar, you know, being best friends with her because she truly, truly made that big of a difference in our in our play as well as in our lives. And looking back, that's all I can hope that I could have given my teammates is I tried to make them the best player they could be. And I I do believe that's what makes the best teammate. It's not going shopping with one another. It's not going out to the movies. What makes the best teammate is doing everything you can on the field to win for your teammates, for yourself, for your family, for your country. It's a number of different things that each individual plays for. and And you can't overlook that. We all play for different reasons. But at the end of the day, it's about winning. And that's what makes a great teammate.
3: I am like, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here just like thinking, man, I do not want to play against open anything ever. And I include this lawsuit in that, you know, like, I think that you're right. The pressure does get to people, the cameras get to people, and you are clearly focused and the one to do this. And um, you know, we. I, I want to thank you again um, for being on the podcast. I I, uh, I think that what you've done and what you're doing is immensely important, and and we want to support in every which way that we can. So, you know, I encourage all listeners to learn more and educate yourself, and 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 give to this cause in the ways that you're able to. Um, and Hope, thank you again. I mean, it's really amazing. And I'm certain that, you know, the the same skills that made you the greatest at your position on the soccer field are going to serve you in the same way for the things that you're taking on now. And, you know, I mean, man, I feel for whomever is going to be going up against you.
4: <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. And thank you for your support. And thank you for just getting the word out and really educating, continuing to educate everybody. Because this, this can change the world that we live in. And this can change and give more opportunity for the younger generations. And so I am hopeful and I do truly believe that the world is in good hands because our younger generations are filled with love, they're filled with progress and and they're fighters. So whether this federal lawsuit um, is successful or not, I know that somebody else will, will take up the fight.
3: Well, thank you again, Hope. We really appreciate you being on. And clearly you, you're, a, you're a soldier of love. You're like, you fight until the end and you do it for the right reasons. And I hope that, you know, my daughters are the same way. And uh, thanks again. Appreciate it.
4: Thank you so much, Chef. Take care.
3: As we often do with these podcasts, I pull the pieces of knowledge that I want to incorporate into my own thinking. And I hope that are valuable for you, the listener, as well. Hope is just a force in nature um, and a true soldier for the things that matter. And I respect people that self-sacrifice when they have platforms and positions more than anyone else, because it's really easy to align yourself with a cause that you say you believe in, to wear the robes, to do it passively while you have another day job. Not many of us put ourselves and our professions on the line like she did, and she deserves our respect. And, um, you know, I think that a few of the things that, that were incredible takeaways for me, it, the complexity of this issue um, I think boils down to same employer, same pay. She's not saying, Hope isn't saying that NBA players and WNBA players should make the same money. She's frankly not saying that in WSL, the women's league in soccer in the US, should make the same as MLS. She doesn't think that. She's not comparing the skills of males and females. That's not what this is about. This is about the U.S. soccer organization being a national governing body, having the same employees doing the same work. And in fact, the women's team does three times the work because they had three times the games, and they get paid less for the same job. This is a cut and dry legal issue this is the law and she's going to prevail um and i don't like stating things like because you never know once you get in front of a court of law let's just say i hope she does and she should and i'm sure that we'll hear way more from her treat every moment like it matters people never give up power you have to fight for your rights i mean that's facts and it's more apparent the older you get that this is the truth unfortunately i also love that she she called out that you really can't put profit over progress And that went for her personally. You know, she could have profited way more from being quiet, and she didn't. She went for progress. And I think that that's the case in your organization and your personal life, and and we always should reexamine and make sure that we're doing things for the right reasons. I also love that she called out that being outspoken isn't a bad thing. You know, she being outspoken was something that she was shamed for for pretty much her entire career, and I think that that's something that's indicative of many women who are talented and who see ways that we should improve things. And we they often get labeled incorrectly for you know being canaries in the coal mine and telling us where we need to go as people, as organizations, as a country. And I think that what's going to take place over the next five, ten years, especially as Hope continues to fight this fight. Is She's going to be remembered for being outspoken, not ostracized for being outspoken. And frankly, Hope embodies the name of this podcast perfectly, The Art of the Hustle. This is a woman who came up from, you know, a small mountain town in western Washington. Her grandma and her mom crossed mountainsides for four and a half hours to watch her play college soccer. This woman is so... Unbelievable and clearly is fighting for something bigger than herself and bigger than all of us. And, um, you know, more than anything, I just appreciate, you know, you listening and me having the opportunity to, to connect and talk to and learn from these amazing people. I also recognize the parallels between hopes. Way of seeing and acting and Arlen Hamilton, who we had earlier on the podcast from Backstage Capital. These are both women that came from, you know, auspicious backgrounds and, uh, and difficult backgrounds who, who took those difficulties and made them advantages. They took the weaknesses and made it their strengths. They wouldn't, you know, allow their starting position to be determinate to their ending position. And they, they both use their voice to educate and inspire change in their respective fields. This has been The Art of the Hustle, a collaboration between WeWork and iHeartMedia. If you like the show or have thoughts on who we should interview next, hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. And if you really like the show, do us a favor and leave us a review here or wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts.